Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to another episode of our podcast called The Edge. Um, I'm really happy to say that today we have another guest speaker on. Um, I'd like to welcome Mr. Vijay Segar. Um, Vijay, thank you very much for coming on. Um, I have a question, as always, and I'll start with the same question I ask everyone that comes on our podcast. I'd really like to know kind of how you got into IT, how you got in security, and, and what kind of journey did you take? So that's an interesting question. Um, I was at a uh, consulting company uh, doing uh, essentially business process and uh, manufacturing supply chain work. And I was doing an e, uh, ERP implementation, SAP. And um, the project went, it was going okay. Um, we had our performance issues, so on and so forth. And uh, we started having performance problems on the SAP application. So of course the solution to any application problem is, or the problem um, that is the root cause of any application performance issue is a networking issue. So what the CIO did is he started uh, really hammering on the networking team. What can we do here? This has gotta be a networking issue, so on and so forth. So the customer went through a, very large data center uh, interconnect refresh. And I got involved in that. I'm like, that's kind of cool. It's kind of fun. And then, oh, I don't know, month, two months later, performance issues hadn't gone away. And then all of a sudden, SAP brought in some, uh, what they call basis people who turned tune their servers. And all of a sudden, the, um, the project or the uh, performance issues went away. Yet the solution, to the problem was still uh, networking upgrade because the problem itself was networking. And I'm like, how cool is this? There's always a problem to be solved even if it's not your fault. So that's literally how I got involved in networking. Kind of a funny story there, right? To solve a SAP performance issue that was never even a networking problem. It sounds like very common. Uh, it's always the network or it's always DNS. Um, so how did you make your journey over to Cisco? Because that's originally how you and I met back in the day. Yeah. So how did I make it to Cisco? You're making me feel uh, old and uh, go back into my way back machine. So I was at a consulting company and we were doing a lot of, um, shall we say, dot com-ish uh, type work. And... Uh, I didn't believe in the business models of a lot of these companies, right? I thought they were vaporware um, built on speculation and hype and um, faulty assumptions. But what I did realize is the infrastructure and the plumbing was gonna be the winner regardless of, um, of uh, who actually wanted the application and the business layer. So I figured if I'm going to be in, if this space is gonna be hot and I'm, not confident that I understand who's going to be the winner at the business level. Why not go to an infrastructure provider? And then back at that time, Cisco was the game in town. So I took what I learned on that little uh, infrastructure upgrade project, uh, read a couple of books, and then faked my way through an interview. And I ended up at Cisco. It's as simple as that. Wow. Um... Let's talk a little bit about what you did at Cisco because you did have a, a bit of a career there and then um, uh, we can dive into some other topics, but uh, what uh, what roles did you have at Cisco? Sure. Um, I like to say that I've done layer zero through layer eight in my career. 
So when I uh, joined Cisco, I joined initially uh, with a service provider group doing ATM switching, as well as uh, layer three routing. So I did that for a handful of years. Um, obviously the ATM switching quickly died uh, that, and it was replaced by IP. So I, um, um, I did a lot of routing products, uh, projects, MPLS, so on and so forth. And I thought this is really kind of complex and I'm working with service providers. And um, I don't know that I love working with service providers. So I thought, let's get into the enterprise group. So I joined the Catalyst team, did switching. And that was a lot of fun because the customers were, were dynamic. There was a lot of innovation in the space. There was a focus not just on the speeds and feeds and getting features out, but really around operational manageability. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. And it clicked with me. So I did that for quite a number of years. And then I did what everyone in the Valley does is I did a little stint at a startup. Um, that startup happened to be around uh, 2008 and our target customers were the financial services customers. Uh, so that, that stint ended up being a little bit shorter than I wanted. And then I uh, was an ASIC PM at Broadcom. Hated that. Didn't like uh, selling to uh, board designers. And then came back to Cisco in the, uh, the routing space, enterprise routing working for Kumar Ramachandran, who ended up being my CEO at, uh, at uh, um, CloudGenics. And uh, that was a huge amount of fun because at the time uh, there was a lot of uh, interesting things going on in the branch space and in the WAN space. Uh, security threats were starting to become interesting. Uh, people were starting to go to more of the internet. Our dear friends at Microsoft basically said, wink, 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 nod, um, nod, nod, you're going to Office 365 because uh, I, I don't think it was called that at the time, but their cloud-based delivery, um, because we're going to make it so cost affordable that to stay on your on-prem uh, exchange is not going to be practical. So that was a lot of fun, right? And there were a lot of challenges, a lot of interesting work to do from identity, from application performance, from building out scalable networks to building out manageable scalable networks. It was, uh, it was quite exciting. I have a, a slightly different question I'm gonna ask you. And actually it's one I've asked a lot of people that work at Cisco. Um, who came up with the name routing when it should be pronounced routing? And I just wondered who I could blame at Cisco for that. Because we would say Route 66, we would call it a router. But for some reason, instead of calling it a router, you call it a router. I just wondered why. Um, I thought uh, uh, the, I think, I thought that term has some, as you call it, uh, has a, a double entendre in certain companies. So I think this was just a more polite way of, uh, of, uh, of saying that. It's always a, a comical one. I mean, every time I speak to someone about networking, I always refer back to it's called Route 66 because you, you are routing traffic, you're routing cars. Why did Cisco decide it was called a router? Um, but anyway, we digress. John, I'll let you ask a more sensible question. <laughs> so we've got this uh, culmination of Microsoft uh, moving to the cloud, identity, uh, security threats coming onto the network. and um, at the time, we've, we've got a lot of stuff going on at Cisco, but yet 
Cisco, you know, they did come out initially with a, a product called IWAN. Uh, there were some follow-ons, policy-based routing. Um, but yet, uh, you know, as we kind of dive into this history of, of SD-WAN, um, they did not really become out, come out the winners out of the gate and uh, had to kind of back up and go buy a company to get into this space. I've always kind of wondered, um, you know, what, what happened at Cisco? Because it, it seemed like they had this this coalition of, of great talent, great ideas, but could not really bring it together. And as a result, you had this explosion of companies out in the space, uh, VeloCloud, Viptilas, uh, CloudGenix, uh, just to name a few. Um, but a lot of them had, you know, Cisco lineage, uh, you know, in terms of the, the founders and the leadership. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe what happened there or some of the reasons as to why this happened and, and um, you know, uh, how we kind of turned out to where we are today? Sure. And I think you're asking really two questions in that question, right? Um, and I'm going to answer one of the questions, which is, um, why did so much of the, uh, the SD-WAN uh, uh, starting uh, founding DNA come out of Cisco? And the, the answer for that is if you look at the, the rooting market, right? If you look at that rooting market, the, the number one predominant far and away vendor was Cisco. So there were lots of people working in that space. Right, working in that in that market, so on and so forth, and Cisco had a little bit of the innovators' dilemma, right? Which is, we've got a billion dollar a quarter business, and it's a billion dollar a quarter business, and um, we're happy with that billion dollar a quarter business. Anything that disrupts that is a is a little bit of a risk, a little bit of a different perspective taken in um, in the routing space, the enterprise routing space compared to enterprise switching with Mario, Luca, Prem, and Sony where they were um, ultra aggressive, ultra paranoid. They were always looking to churn themselves and, and create disruptions um, compared to the enterprise routing space. So the enterprise routing space tended to be channel driven, right? Um, sell through channel, so on and so forth. So it led to a lot of conservatism, incrementalism. Um, and you would just uh, ship incremental improvements. And there wasn't an understanding that there was a threat to the market because the business was going well, right? Um, and if you look at IWAN, IWAN was Cisco's attempt to essentially enable some level of multipathing on a routed network. And they had all sorts of challenges with that. So there was a whole group of us. There was the Viftela folks, right, with, um, with their founders. Um, there was the, uh, a lot of the Silver Peak DNA and uh, the VeloCloud DNA, and of course the CloudGenics DNA, we all came out of Cisco. And we all saw disruption. We all saw some of the challenges with Cisco and said, oh my, if we wanna get this done, we're not gonna be able to get this done at Cisco. And there's a huge opportunity there. Uh, so why did we not all essentially start the same company with the same, um, the same idea, the same architecture. Uh, I like to think quite frankly, it's because each of us uh, had a very unique perspective in terms of what SD-WAN, as it's now called, can uh, possibly solve, right? When we left, Cloud, when we left Cisco to, um, to join CloudGenix, 
uh, we didn't say we're going to build an SD-WAN company. We said, here's this uh, routing infrastructure, which is predominantly Cisco. There's a lot of disruption happening. There's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of change. What are the problems that this is creating for our enterprise customers? And what can we do that's interesting to solve that problem? So we all had that very same discussion, Biptela, Silver Peak, and us, right? So, uh, and, and uh, Velo Cloud. Velo, I think they had their perspective in terms of things moving to the cloud. So they probably said, let's see if we could find a cloud delivered solution, right? Uh, that was their interesting inflection point. Viptela uh, basically said, routing is complex. Okay, cool, routing is complex. How can we essentially uh, abstract away and simplify the routing stack? And then Cloudgenics, our perspective was, uh, who cares about routing, right? Customers don't care about routing or routing or whatever you wanna call it. What customers care about is my applications are going everywhere and I don't wanna get beat up on application performance anymore. So we came from the perspective of the problem that customers had was one of application delivery and application performance. And that's why you have, uh, even though they're all called SD-WAN, you have three, four very, very different uh, technology implementations. And then I would also argue that outside of the core hybrid WAN use case, you have three or four very different customer value propositions. And it's your question, John. Can you? Yeah, absolutely. Can you kind of dive into that? Because I think that's something that's missed, um, especially when technology leaders start to look at products. Uh, how do they decide what um, what's their best fit? You know, um, is it is it I want simplification in my routing? Is it I need a cloud delivered network? Is it uh, I'm definitely interested in application performance? Um, can you provide some advice to uh, enterprise architects, network architects, and, and infrastructure leaders out there? How do you make sense of a market? I mean, when we saw SD-WAN come out of, let's call it stealth in 2015 timeframe, um, it was hard to make a choice. It, it, it was a lot of meetings that you had to go through to get to the point where, all right, I'm going to go with CloudGenix or I'm going to go with Viptila. Um, what advice would you have to, to give to those people? Yeah, so let's uh, let's step away from te uh, technology for a second, and let's talk not talk about SD WAN. Let's talk about cars, right? I want to buy a car. Do I want to buy a minivan? Do I want to buy a uh, two seater Miata? Do I want to buy a um, an electric uh, Tesla or Rivian or, or whatever they are now, or do I want to buy F two fifty? Right? Uh, they're all cars. Right, so I could buy one car versus the other car, right? What, what do I choose based on? I choose based on what I need, right? If I uh, like to tinker around outside and I have a lot of construction projects, maybe I'll get the, uh, the F-250, right? Because it's got a lot of places, um, it's got good towing capacity, it's got a good payload capacity, and it's got a pretty comfortable cabin. If I'm single, I don't have kids, I'm young, maybe I get a Miata. Right, if I live in California. If I've got six kids, I get a minivan, right? So it really comes down to really from your personal perspective, your organization's perspective, what are the things that are important to you? 
And, and the reason I bring that up is I think the, the industry labels and the marketing hype does customers a disservice because they make it appear that all of the SD-WAN vendors are essentially solving the same problem. So yeah, I'm just gonna look at a bunch of SD-WAN vendors and I'm gonna go to Gartner, I'm gonna go to wherever, I'm gonna pick the one that's at the top of the list and I'm done. No, it doesn't work that way, right? Just like if you look at cars, I can have a Porsche that's number one for sports cars in the top 10 list. I can have uh, uh, Ford F-150 or F-250. I'm not a, a truck car a guy. That's why that's the only one that I'm mentioning. Um, at the top of, uh, of that ranking for car and driver and whatever minivan that happens to be. So I think for an enterprise organization, I would suggest forget the technology labels and the hype and then just look at the, the enterprise WAN. What are the problems that you see today that your business is asking you to solve? And then how do you project those problems out in the future? I would write that down first and even abstract away from what vendors can do. I would write that down first and I would think about it and I would get buy-in. And then I would start to look at the vendors um, through how they can address those problems today and how their architecture and just as importantly, their corporate vision aligns to your vision of what you think your organization is going to need. So it's I a think, little bit backward. I, I think, to be honest, your analogy of cars is a great one because over the years, the people I've met in sales are a bit like car salesmen. You go in to buy a minivan and they're trying to sell you that Porsche. Um, and there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in the industry. So you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I did an SD-WAN project when I lived in corporate world and, and it was really hard because every one of the SD-WAN vendors I spoke to all told me they could fix all of my problems. And it's only, I guess, when I when I reached out to kind of my inner circle, those people I trusted, those people who might already kind of be at several miles down the road in that journey, they, they could turn around and say, no, this one doesn't quite do this, this one doesn't quite do that. And I think the world is changing a bit. People tend to be a bit more honest than I think they were 20 odd years ago. But there's still very much a, a, a kind of everybody wants to sell you everything. And I get it. I mean, everyone's trying to make money, but it's really hard. I, I mean, I understand that the SD-WANs are different. You've made it a lot clearer already than, than I've heard before. Um, but it would be difficult for someone under pressure in an organization that's told, go out and fix the network, go out and fix the problem. SD-WAN's the way forward. So actually sit down with all the vendors and come up with a differentiator and, and come up with a plan of which way to go. Um, and I'm hoping those things kind of get easier over time. But actually, I don't think they do. And I mean, I've seen new technology be released all the time and it's still complicated. Well, it gets simpler if you ignore the noise about the when you talk about rep, uh, reference. I'm sorry vendors and differentiation and i'm going to come back to the car analogy again i've got two kids right so some people would say if the car that you buy has those tv screens in the in the seat that's a huge differentiator right oh my god that might drive a purchasing decision but if you don't have any kids if it's a single you but for whatever reason you still want a minivan um you know god help you um having those screens in the rear seat, in the back of the seat, isn't going to matter at all. 
So it always comes back to what's important to you. What is the problem that you're trying to solve, right? Above and beyond, oh, we want hybrid WAN, right? What are the enterprise problems that you foresee solving today and into the future? And that I think will help clutter up or clear up a lot of the clutter uh, from the, the vendor marketing pitches, right? So I never like to ask uh, any vendor or any technology vendor, how do you differentiate versus X, Y, and Z? I always like to ask them, okay, you're in space X, Y, Z. What are the problems that you think are important to solve today and into the future, right? Because you're going to get a non-marketing answer from them. And then I follow up by saying, okay, that's interesting. Now you said X, Y, and Z. Um, I agree with that or I don't agree with that. You're going to learn a lot from that. Uh, and then I can follow up with, okay, vendor ABC uh, says something very similar. Or how do you differ in this approach from vendor ABC? Because they're saying they're trying to optimize a different problem, right? How do you rationalize this? So that's the way I always look like to look at it. Come at it from the me perspective and a vision perspective, as opposed to a paper and pencil. How does vendor A differ from vendor B? A lot of times I don't care, right? So why don't we dive into um, the journey of a startup? Uh, you had a very prominent role within CloudGenix. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, behind the scenes. How did, how did the whole process start? And uh, then we can kind of talk about your role there. Sure. Um, how did the process start? So we were at Cisco and we were working in the, the routing and the uh, WAN optimization space, right? And there was a group of people that said, uh, WAN optimization is the solution to world hunger. And then we're sitting there and we're looking at the math, right? What made WAN optimization viable from a technology point of view? Believe it or not, it wasn't the fact that it improved application performance. The, the real value proposition of WAN optimization, it was, the, it was that it was the most cost-effective bandwidth doubler in the industry, pure and simple, right? Now, what happened with the uh, consumerization of internet is doubling bandwidth actually became the most cost-effective bandwidth doubler out there. And that's, I think, why you saw the... Um, the WAN optimization market die, right? For that very simple reason, the economics weren't there. But again, the underlying problem uh, was still a performance issue, right? Um, now, the, the way of solving that problem went away because bandwidth was cheaper to solve the performance issue than WAN optimization. But that underlying problem statement, that underlying business driver was still there. So then there was a question of how do you start to measure, monitor, control application performance, right? So that was one thing. The other thing that we realized is that topologies were no longer the, the standard uh, dump and run uh, enterprise WAN architecture of the past, where I basically take a router or a router and drop packets on a VPN network and they're forwarded into the data center, right? That model was dying. Branch to branch flows were interesting, branch to internet, branch to cloud, so on and so forth. So there was a lot of complexity and a lot of brittleness from a policy and administration, from a monitoring, from a scalability point of view, and from a security point of view. And um, we looked at Cisco 
And Cisco viewed it as we have the best router in the industry. Um, we're going to play some routing tricks. And then we're going to do what we always do, which is we're going to basically take Cisco Prime, rebrand it, and uh, put a, um, a fresh coat of paint on it. But it's still Cisco Prime or Cisco Works or, or whatever uh, it evolved from. And we looked at ourselves and said, we don't believe in it. We don't think it's the right thing to do. Let's go off to the side and see if we can find a different way to solve some of these enterprise problems. And I'm willing to bet that the, the folks at Vitella and Silver Peak and Velo said pretty much the same thing. So that's how we ended up at, uh, at uh, CloudGenics. So obviously you're taking a risk. You have a, let's call it a secure job in the industry um, for the top number one vendor. Um, and then taking that risk to go into a startup. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that, maybe what that feels like and then uh, kind of what that first few months uh, was like? So the uh, so the risk is an interesting thing, right? Um, I don't view uh, going from a big company to a startup as being uh, risky or not risky, just because there is such innovation, so there's such tremendous churn. And um, let's face it, technology companies don't have uh, a necessarily a long life if they can't stay on top, if they can't keep reinventing themselves. So in many ways, uh, risk is, um, is have to, has to be looked at differently. Now, for me, the biggest risk had nothing to do with, um, with the stability of the company. It had to do with the fact that uh, we just had a kid buying a house, and then there was a risk in, from a time point of view. So that uh, we all have to come to grips with um, the balance between personal obligations and work obligations. Now, when I got to CloudGenics, there were, I think, a couple of um, deep breath aha moments, which is in a big company, oftentimes there's a bias towards inaction. In a startup, uh, there's a bias towards action. You have to do something because you have to disrupt the market, right? So you have to make decisions. You have to take chances. And to that end, uh, what was scary and exciting and refreshing and scary all at the same time is that those decisions were being made and they were being made by us. And there was no organization or uh, John Chambers Council or Steering Committee uh, uh, sitting over us saying, well, you shouldn't do this. There's these trade-offs and these trade-offs, and we're going to invest the money everywhere, uh, everywhere else but you, right? That bias towards inaction. And at a company like Cisco, that's probably the right thing to do because they have to maximize revenue for their shareholders. And those bets are hard. For us, very different. We had a very focused problem that we wanted to solve. And we were the one who, uh, who was... Um, uh, making those bets and placing our faith uh, in what those bets were. So that was the, the super exciting part. Every decision was consequential. There was nowhere to hide. Um, and there was um, no ability to not make a decision. I assume, therefore, that there were some mistakes made. Is that right? Every single vendor every single product team, every single engineering organization uh, starts with a thesis. 
right? And what happens is you apply that thesis to the market, you get more information, and then you adjust. Things change, and then you adjust. Notice I said thesis, and I avoided the word mistake. Because uh, if you think about it as right versus wrong, you know, I made a mistake, then there's oftentimes a bias towards falling in love with your own idea, right? And you get stuck and you get myopic and you don't adjust. And I've seen a lot of startups make that mistake. This was my architecture. I love it. It's perfect. There was no mistakes because I'm not capable of making a mistake. Well, everyone's capable of making a mistake and things change. So we really focused on essentially what were the theses that we had and then we would um, take them to market, get feedback from customers, um, start the implementation, get more feedback, and then we would adjust based upon how the technology was working and the feedback that we were getting from the market and uh, what other information points we were gathering. That's a good way of looking at it. In your role at Cloudgenics was the product manager. So you sat right in the middle, uh, that intersection between the customer and the, the people doing the, the coding, the engineering on the product. Um, can you talk a little bit about that role and uh, you know um, some of the ways that that influenced the product and, and uh, how you also had to kind of protect the roadmap as well? Well, so again, protecting the roadmap is, uh, is an... Well, I, I guess I say protect the roadmap because the salespeople, they want, you know, this and this and this to get, uh, you know, their customer to buy the product. So you're kind of in this 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 difficult role because much like a middle uh, manager, um, you have, you know, dictates from above, you have people from below and you're kind of in the middle. You know, you're that middle person uh, getting ground from both sides. So, um, so I'm going to go back to the the whole big company way of managing a roadmap oftentimes, right? Because at a big company, what I often saw, and this was, uh, and I'm explicitly not saying Cisco here because this is not a uh, just a Cisco problem. It's easy to fall into the trap of managing a roadmap based upon a, a pull from your customers. I've got these 10 customers who will give me X million dollars if I build this feature. And then I do a sort based upon uh, revenue commits. And if you've got a good sales team, then those revenue commits will actually come in if uh, if those features are delivered. If you don't have a good sales team, so help you, right? Um, it's not going to be the case. I never viewed a roadmap as that, right? I never viewed managing a roadmap as that. I viewed uh, kind of a product and a technology roadmap in a very different way. It's uh, the responsibility of engineering and product management and uh, believe it or not, at Cloudgenics, sales was a key component of this as well, which is unusual in a, in a startup and even a big company. And that was exciting. Engineering product and sales, we would essentially get a good idea of what the joint vision of the product is, right? What is our overall strategic roadmap? What are the directions? And that helped us really stay focused on how do we evaluate customer feature requests that come in? So we would have this vision and this general direction in terms of the problems that we wanted to solve and roughly how we would uh, go about solving them. And then when customers would come in with feature requests, it's easy to have a conversation with sales engineering and products about, hey, these feature requests, do they fit in with our general vision? 
And if they do, then it's just a matter of a little bit of a rejiggering exercise. And that happened quite a bit, believe it or not. And that was fun because we were all on the same page because the roadmap was really our shared vision for, for the company rather than just a collection of features. Now, in every company, uh, there's always going to be those scenarios where customer XYZ says, I'm going to give you a massive amount of money if you deliver this capability for us. And then you just have to deal with those situationally. In some cases, you're going to say, yes, it's worth it. Uh, if it's enough with our vision or it's not going to distract us enough uh, so much that we take the money. Or maybe we realize that it's going to open up another uh, stream for us. And then other cases, you're like, yeah, you know what? We could win this deal but it's gonna take us completely off of our vision for the product. And we think the right thing to do is staying on that vision. And then we turn it down, All right? So that's kind of the way we uh, did it. And having sales and product and engineering on the same page and in the tent on that was hugely uh, beneficial. Yeah, so obviously Gartner came out with the, the kind of sassy framework. Um, and then they kind of split that into SD1 and SSE. Um, and me and John have our kind of thoughts on that. But I, I, I'd be interested in, in really what you think, I guess, to, and two questions. One is kind of what you think about SASE in general. And also, what do you think the, the future of SD1 looks like? All right. Two very distinct questions. And the first one, which is what do I think of SSE and, and SASE in general? Um, I'm gonna go back to my original answer and repeat it, which is it's a marketing label. And if I look at the SSE vendors, um, if I look at uh, Palo Alto with Prisma Access, if I look at Zscaler with ZIA and ZPA, if I look at, um, oh, I don't know, there's this uh, pretty cool company out there, Access Security. And there's this other company out there, which uh, some may have heard of, uh, Netscope. They're all SSE vendors, but if you talk to them, they all have a very, very, very different view of the problem to be solved, right? So when I, when I uh, am talking to customers, and uh, now that I'm out of that space, uh, I increasingly talk to customers about it because I can give them uh, a more forthright and a frank assessment uh, because I don't have skin in the game. Right? I tell them, ignore the label. Look at the problem they are trying to solve. Look at how they articulate that problem. And how does that align to what your problem is when it comes to securing the enterprise WAN? I don't even use the word SSE in my discussions with customers. Right. So if I look at Zscaler, Zscaler fundamentally is delivering two things. One, there's their ZIA product which is helping you essentially secure outbound internet traffic. If your organization's primary charter is around securing outbound internet traffic, cool, right? Good for you. I don't think that that's important. I'm more concerned about protecting my infrastructure and my assets in that infrastructure. So it's the other direction, right? Yeah, I'm a little concerned about leakage too, um, but I think that could be solved in other ways, which is why I'm at the company that I'm at now. Uh, and then there's a second thing that Zscaler does with the ZPA, which I um, jokingly and, and lovingly refer to as essentially uh, pre-connect NAC in the cloud at, at layer seven, right? 
<laughs> what they do is they give you that same capability. They give you essentially access control without inspection or uh, without inspection, right? It's literally NAC that's done right, that's easy to manage. CASB is the same way. It's essentially NAC for SaaS applications. I don't think that's what customers are wanting, right? Some do. If, if you do, good for you. If that's what your need is, that's awesome. I'm not going to knock it. But I think with SSE, it's super, super important to understand what are the specific enterprise problems that you are trying to solve? What is the vision of the vendors and which vendor best aligns to your vision? I had a conversation uh, before Palo Alto acquired Cloudgenics and the customer, and we were doing business with um, all of the, the uh, SSE vendors at the time because they all had a lot of customers. And there was a customer once that asked me, which, which cloud security solution do you recommend? And my answer to that is, well, what's, what is the problem that you're trying to solve? What is your end state vision of um, your architecture? It's like, what do you mean? Well, what's the problem that you're trying to solve um, that's ask, causing you to ask this question? And he struggled with that. And I'm like, okay, let me give you some examples. Is your primary concern that you've got people going out to the internet and you want to do URL filtering, right? Uh, and he said, no, I'm like I didn't think so because you're a regulated enterprise, right? And then I, then I said, is the problem that you're trying to solve that you've got applications that are moving uh, to various locations throughout the world and you've got these regional policy enforcement points that are increasingly complex to manage and they're expensive and they're bottlenecks and you can't meet your business requirements and still be secure with performance at the same time. He's like, that's my problem. I'm like, okay, then that's what you should say. These are the list of problems that I wanna solve and then talk to the vendors, understand what is their vision and which solution best has the best match. And that's what they did. And they picked a vendor and I'm not going to tell you which vendor they picked, but they picked a vendor and they've been quite happy with that decision. Okay. So that's the first part of your question. The second part of your question is how do I think SD-WAN fits into that, right? Into the whole SASE play. Now, if I look at SD-WAN and SSE and get rid of all of the labels, what are customers asking? Customers are asking, uh, how do I essentially uh, take a secure WAN infrastructure and solve a few fundamental problems? Make sure that it's resilient, make sure that it's easy to insert, insert new security services into the stack because God forbid, there's uh, threats popping up every day and companies like uh, security, where I'm at now, security AI, who are coming up with new innovations, right? Uh, to solve real problems. How do I make it easier to adopt those new technologies without having to work, wait for a refresh cycle or without having to re-architect my WAN infrastructure, right? How do I get the time to value for service delivery down to the days and weeks, not quarters and years? Right? How do I address changing topologies? How do I do it in a way that's performant? Now, the reason I mention that is how does SD-WAN fit in that world? SD-WAN is one component of essentially delivering that secure WAN fabric 
So I think the SD-WAN vendors are, that are going to win are the ones that natively give you the ability to insert new services, natively give you performance awareness, and are natively topology agnostic. That's my perspective. And I think each of the SD-WAN vendors is going to have their own perspective. And one thing might work for you, but not for somebody else. And that's okay. That's why there's choice. Yeah, I, I mean, I really think your advice is is good. Um, and in a, in a way, I'm glad we live in a world where we have a choice, where we can list out the things that affect us and our companies. And then we can match those problems and those risks and those scenarios up with other vendors. If there was no choice and we all had to go in the same place then innovation wouldn't move at the rate it does and i think fundamentally sd-wan vendors sassy vendors sse vendors and everything else out there is moving so fast with innovation right now a lot of it is because of the pandemic and because the shift of people have like got up and they've walked home and things have changed but it's also because there are so many vendors all, all kind of vying for business therefore they constantly have to innovate and try and outdo each other and I, I said this before, and I think John agrees that I don't think one vendor fits everyone's needs. I think there is going to be a requirement for people still to buy from several vendors. But integrations are also key. I think it's going to be important that if you don't buy from a SASE vendor, say, and you want to buy an SD-WAN and, and an SSE product, that integration between the two, and also within other tools, visibility tools or endpoint protection tools or whatever, you need further integration. And that's never been something that vendors have really wanted to do because they've wanted to own all bits of the pie. But I've, I think that's kind of changing now and people are beginning to realize if we all hold hands, then we can win. So if you do come up with good integrations, you you can move forward. So I, I, I always like... I always like to, and, and this is the discussion that we had um, at CloudGenix and, and then even at Palo Alto. Uh, at CloudGenix, we were API-based and we integrated with everybody. Um, Palo Alto, believe it or not, they continued that philosophy, right? We preserved the APIs, we continue to interoperate with everybody. And that to me is important. And I always like to remind people, uh, do you remember the fiber channel world? Fiber channel was an okay technology, but if you looked at McData and Brocade and and, uh, and so on and so forth, HDS, they would all have very closed ecosystems, right? Oh, we only play well with an HDS fabric or we only uh, play well with a McData fabric. And they would have these things called interoperability modes where if you would go into interoperability mode, uh, minor features like LUN zoning, which is a storage ACL would break, right? So they were so worried about uh, territorialism and protecting their territory, they, they ended up essentially killing off that technology. Whereas if you look at IP, we would have these glorious plug fests, interoperability plug fests, where Cisco and Juniper would get together and they'd make stuff work together, right? They would do it in exciting and 3D chess sort of ways where one person would try to get an advantage over the other. But at the end of the day, it was a drive towards an, um, interoperability and giving customers the ability to build these heterogeneous networks out. And that led to a much, much larger market. So if you, if my view is if you want to kill a market, uh, make it proprietary. Best way of keeping it small.
if you want to make a market big, open it up. And that pie is going to get bigger for everybody. And everyone's going to end up getting a bigger piece of the pie. At least the winners are the people with good ideas. Excellent advice, VJ. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're doing today? Sure. I am working at a pretty exciting company, Security AI. What they do is uh, essentially they do data controls, cloud, and governance. So what does that mean, right? Everyone's got data. And everyone's got data that describes them. Everyone's got data that's sensitive to the organization. But there's really no way to solve that problem easily in terms of how do I class, classify, categorize, and assert policy against that data. And um, when I was at uh, Palo and people were talking about DLP, I would hear customers saying, oh my gosh, we, we have to protect our data. And the way we would do it is they would do some inspection at the, um, at the periphery, or they would go with the Symantec endpoint vendors and they would deploy agents which had performance implications and became unmanageable. So they were asking, they were asking for DLP, but what they were really needing was a way to actually look at all of their data and classify it, whether it's structured data, unstructured data, in the cloud, on-prem, right, hosted or SaaS. That's what they wanted, right? How can I essentially scan all of this data and build a policy model and a risk model around that data. So that's what we do. We allow you to scan without an agent or any, as I like to jokingly refer to, uh, um, you've heard me call it this, right? Now, corporate approved malware that's running on your endpoints, right? No corporate approved malware required. We look at all of that data, dark data, as well as non-dark data, if you're in AWS. So we can learn those dark assets and we can help you actually build a model of what are my data assets that are out there? What is sensitive from a PII point of view, from a corporate point of view? What is sensitive from a California data privacy, from a GDPR, you name it, right? Based upon a set of attributes that we think are important, but also on a set of attributes that are custom and classifiers that are custom that you think are important for your business. So we build that model for you. And then it becomes now a simple matter of writing policy against that. And that's what we do. And, and you can access our solution using APIs. Right, so we can help you fulfill uh, uh, subject data requests. If you're uh, calling um, iRobot or Alaska Airlines or, or one of those really cool companies or Chipotle saying, hey, you have all of this personal information about me. I want you to delete it because we have that data library and we have that, con uh, that context of um, we have a data catalog and we know where those assets are. And we have the ability to automatically now access, categorize, uh, group, and delete that information. Something that would take weeks and months now could be done in a in minutes or hours with approvals, right? And that extends now not just subject data requests, but data breach management. You've got all of this data. What happens if a particular organization or a target was breached? People spend. That hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars trying to do that after the fact breach assessment and then figuring out what uh, regulations and obligations they have to figure out who they need to pay fines to and to prioritize their response. Well, we do that for you, right? Because we know where those assets are. 
we've already got those assets classified by data category and map them to essentially obligations. And that can really simplify and improve your response to something like a data breach. So it's super, super exciting. Um, and I'm having a lot of fun, which is always a good thing. Vijay, it's been insightful. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and talking SD-WAN, talking SASE, talking uh, where you're at, security, AI. This has been a, a great conversation. So uh, really appreciate your time. All right. Have a great day. This podcast is a production of the SSE Forum. Editing and post-production is provided by John Spiegel. Sound engineering is expertly conducted by Chris Danby. Food recommendations? Solely the territory of Jay Tilson. Thanks for listening, and give us a follow on LinkedIn, as well as on Twitter.